So if you want someone, if you want to talk to someone that wants to 3D print an organ, you know, oh boy, do I have people you can talk to. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we bring you candid conversations with leading entrepreneurs and innovators in health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. For this episode, I sat down with Lukash Kowalik, Senior Licensing and Business Development Officer at Weill Cornell. We wanted to have Lukash on because his experience really bridges science and business. On one hand, he's got a degree in chemistry, PhD in neuroscience, postdoc in chemical biology. On the other hand, his recent roles have been in business development, and his current position has him helping inventors and startups commercialize their products hand-in-hand with a large university health system. In the conversation, which took place in front of a live audience of founders from the startup health portfolio, we got into why a startup should consider partnering with a university and how to best navigate that tech transfer process. Plus, we take a few questions from the founders in the audience. Stick around. Let's start by getting to know you a little bit better. Give us a flyover of how you came into your current position at Wow Cornell. And what was your aha moment when you knew you wanted to work in business development and not just stay in a lab? Uh, thanks. That's a, that's a really good question. So for me, I, you know, I actually always wanted to be a scientist and work in the lab, uh, even as a, as a little uh, kid. Uh, so science was never a question. It's really more when I started working in the lab um, that I realized that there is a, um, there is a gap. You know, there's a need for people that can understand science and talk to people that make it. Uh, and then there's a whole universe out there that, you know, where you really, really need to um, help people to you know make sense of the scientific funding, um, connect them to the right founder, funders, founders, you name it, right? That there's a lot of translation to be done. And I think the academic scientists tend to sometimes belittle that, right? I, I was lucky enough to be at Stanford where there's a great Spark program. I don't know if you know, um, uh, amazing team there. Um, and I had some, you know, from Daria Moshley Rosen and um, Kevin Grimes, I had some amazing mentorship that really showed me that, oh, wow, you know, there's really a lot to be understood about how drug development, how innovation works outside of the lab. And then I ended up doing some um, consulting work um, when I met this amazing uh, mentor. Her name was uh, Taro Milsall. And she initially, that's a really funny, we met on, on Craigslist. Uh, and she hired me to sort of tutor her in biology uh, because she was taking on a new product. She was a biz dev professional that never done anything biology related. And we just really hit it off and I realized, wow, like, you know, she's this amazing person that can really sell ideas uh, that she's really learned about, you know, within the last few, few weeks. So, you know, hey, maybe there is something there uh, for someone who has an experience with science. And that's how it started. I ended up then uh, working at Merck, the German Merck, Merck KGEA. I'm doing innovation in a large company, really bringing new ideas, a little bit pushing the rope, if you will. Um, you know, trying to, and, and, but it's gratifying to see these things were adopted. Um, so they moved into things like, you know, 3D bioprinting or use a blockchain to tracking their medications. You know, that's some of the projects we've pioneered with them as innovation um, specialists there. But I, I was missing university. Um, so when an opportunity at UCLA came up, 
I thought I could really go in there and be kind of that bridge that bring in a bit of that business sensibility um, into an academic environment that I know and treasure. And that was this, you know, and, and that started out UCLA and then took me back to New York City. I did my PhD at Rockefeller just across the street from where I am at Cornell now. Um, and it's really been a treasure, you know, as a, someone who does business at the university, business development, um, we also, you know, my role would really be covered by five different roles in a company, right? We do competitive intelligence, we do deals, we do IP management, we do also some of the informal R&D advising. I mean, the scientists, if they often work with us um, to help them advance their projects, right, in a way that are commercializable. Um, and that's actually been one of the greatest joys, right, is actually working with scientists to sort of, if they're willing, it's very relationship-based to really make sure that they um, uh, sort of, you know, take into account what the markets are like and what are the needs, you know, how that can complement their scientific expertise. Now, there's a lot of folks on this call who've worked in business development, uh, fewer that have degrees in chemistry, neuroscience, chemical biology. And I wonder if you could speak to um, kind of your unique perspective coming from that background uh, specifically thinking about blind spots or gaps that you might have uh, if you're in the field and maybe don't have a science background. How, how do you see things uniquely? Uh, so I think for me, the biggest um, advantage about it, that, it, that, that my background brings is really to be able to get scientists on board. I think, you know, it's really that relationship thing is that, quite often, um, at least initially, like I said, um, you mean, you may, many of you I'm sure have experience with scientists that have already committed themselves to this kind of commercial journey. But I think when you're at the beginning of it, sometimes, you, you know, some of them, uh, you don't, they don't really get the full picture because it's just not really taught, it's not really discussed, right? The fact that really the initial idea is just the, the very beginning of an avalanche of steps that need to be made, right? That the regulatory science is, you know, crazy complicated, that IP, that business of it. So I think it's really just kind of being meet the scientists at a certain level, just explain them, look, I'm an expert too. Um, I get what you're coming from, but in what we do, that's also expertise, right? And that's also some, an important piece of the puzzle. And I think that's something when, um, so it gives me street cred, if you will. Sure, and sure. That I, and that can give you um, the sort of buy-in to push other ideas. I mean, I can remember when I joined UCLA at first, you know, I was talking to, um, you know, a, a, an amazing urologist. She became my real good friend at first. And, you know, my first conversation with her, and she was like, well, wait, you're not going to tell me how to do my science, right? And then six months later, she called me and was like, oh, I want to do this experiment. What do you think? Right? Yeah. So it's really... I think that when you show that you have valuable feedback into people's science, that also when they start looking at you a little differently. And I think we should remember that. Like in the end, you know, the business idea is there, um, but it should have implication to, for upstream research. I mean, it yeah. shouldn't just, you know, they do need to be connected. And I think, and I think so in other words, it should flow both ways, right? So not just we're taking the ideas and science and taking them into business opportunities, but also how can go, how can, um, this, this, this river of ideas flow backwards from the business opportunity, from where the market is, you know, it could be 
um, medical experience, right? Could be some new um, rare and disease indication that maybe the scientist isn't aware of, right? Could be a need uh, on your end that you want to need to sell to the coder or to the physician. There's a lot of other experts that you may want to engage. And I think what the business professionals bring it is understanding of the market, you know, the pain points, um, really the, 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 and that can translate into this, this sort of value proposition, right? Sure. That's sure. So that's why it goes both ways. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important lesson in terms of how you're building your team, your advisory board, uh, having those experts that are going to give you the credibility within the science and medical community. Um, today's conversation is about tech transfer, uh, which is you know kind of a, just a fancy way of saying, how do you get this great idea out of your head, out of the lab, out of the hands, uh, off the kitchen table, and into a partnership with a large institution, like in, this, in your case, a university, um, you know, you're an expert on how this works at a university, but I'm guessing that a lot of the same principles apply for other large institutions. But I want to zero in on uh, the university piece here and really kind of understand for the founders on the call who haven't thought about having a u university partner, why in the world should they consider working with a university with their startup? So, um First of all, it's really university's mission, right? So this is something to really to, to take into account is that your university is largely publicly funded one way or another. Um, you know, billions of dollars go into research, right? And, and even though, um, so it is really part of this way of getting their, getting your, you know, uh, uh, your, the bang for your buck for, uh, for taxpayers' money or foundation money, whatever you want to call it, right? So that, I think most of universities should consider part of their mission and the kind of the system we live in, right? Commercializing something is, is really one of the chief ways of, of getting something to the hands of the people, right? When I was working for a public university in California, I always said, hey, you know, I'm really here to make this accessible to patients uh, and to consumers, whoever might want to use it, right? So I think this is something to really keep in mind. And universities, you know, they teach and they do research usually. Um, so this kind of innovation piece tends to be seen as a little bit of a sideshow. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, the, the amount of money will generate probably will never rival some of the biggest grants. Although it's, you know, it, it gets, sometimes it gets close. The UCLA, I was before, right? They had a deal with Xtandi, a cancer, prostate cancer drug that was monetized for over a billion dollars. So, you know, nice chunk of change even for a big school. Um, but always remember that, you know, there's certain things about university that will make them a little cautious. Uh, but they will see the opportunity if you sell it to them right. Um, that is, we like to have a good story, right? We like to have a story that we can use to recruit and show people that we are on the cutting edge, right? That we're, hey, we're out here getting, uh, making great new drugs. Um, and I think that's our new treatment or helping spin out new companies. I know there's a lot of people here that, you know, work in digital space and, and we welcome all of that. Um, but what you kind of have to maybe understand is that, you know, these are large bodies and sometimes it can take us a little while even to understand who has the authority to take care of the particular request you're asking for, right? Sure. So certain things are very clear, like patents, right? This is something we would think about. But when it comes to things like data requests, right? we, we can be quite careful and should be, as we should be, right? About patient data, about the tissues that we have. And we quite often have large biobanks and, um, you know, some of the universities have and you know with, with justification got into trouble for misusing that data so now everyone's very careful but at the same time it's a treasure trove like right? often millions of samples thousands of patients um and uh, we are looking to ways to unlock it 
Right? So if you can come to us with a very specific request, right, a specific product, a specific idea, like, hey, you know, we're looking to pilot a study among, you know, depression patients, or we're looking back. So I, I think that would really help is being quite defined in the kind of data you're looking for. Uh, and being armed with a little patience, little bit of patience um, uh, to show that, you know, it's something that can take us a while to process this request. And being sensitive to, to issues like patient um, anonymity and safety, patient data safety, you know, academic freedom. Uh, if you sponsor research with the university, we always need to have access to that IP to pursue other research interests. Uh, you know, there's sort of those values that the universities hold dear. Yeah, I want to talk more about that academic freedom piece because you said it quickly. And I think it's kind of a big concept. But before that, I want to flesh mm -hmm. out a couple more points of sort of what's in it for the startup, thinking maybe I'll partner with the university, maybe I'll uh, That's right. yeah. go a different route. So you said, you know, it's a big pot of money. If you're a taxpayer, you should take advantage of it. You said treasure trove of data if you can pitch it in a way that speaks to a risk averse uh, um, institution. Um, other, uh, you know, other things that are unique about partnering with the so it's, university. It's, we're, we're being paid to think out of the box, right? I, I think that's something really to, to, if you look at right now, the startups like yours and universities really take a lot on the risk, take a lot, you know, take on a lot of the risk. A lot of the established larger companies, as you know, they prefer to, you know, a little bit wait and see, see how that new kind of therapy first on the line, you know, treatment, whether it's a new app to, to treat um, uh, uh, anxiety or, um, you know, whether it's psychedelics or psychiatric diseases, right? There's things that uh, a lot of large companies, maybe it looks a little bit too risky for them, but they like mm -hmm. to keep an eye on it. And this is the kind of collaboration with university, which our job to really, you know, think out of the box, com com come up with completely new ideas, um, and startups that then take on that risk a little bit and sort of, um, you know, de-risk it further. So I feel that that's really the inherent value proposition is that, you know, if you have, if you want someone, if you want to talk to someone that wants to 3D print an organ, you know, oh boy, do I have people you can talk to, right? If you want someone that wants to try this something new and crazy idea you have, there will be people at the university that are probably already thinking and trying to do it, you know, whether it's, it's called fusion, um, you know, new way of, of doing computer memory or in health um, but, treatments, preventative I, diagnostic. Lukash, what I hear you saying is that there's sort of two sides of this risk conversation. Uh, you're, you're saying that one of the biggest reasons why a startup should consider working with the university is that there are individuals, um, researchers, scientists, students <laughs> who are um, willing to take risks, want to take risks. They're thinking about things like 3D printing organs. And so finding those individuals, those pockets of innovators can be a really powerful driver for your own startups innovation. And then you said before, the institution itself can be rather risk averse when you think about data sharing, privacy, um, I'm guessing how their name is used, things like that. So uh, is, is that accurate to say that, that both of yeah. those exist? So we're very you know, the word risk, maybe we're very open to obviously new research areas and new avenues of exploring knowledge. But when it comes to, um, you know, certain, I think it's really just about values, right? When it comes to, like I said, academic freedom, when it comes to protecting our patients, which is again, that the healthcare aspect of it, when it comes to, 
Yeah. So certain things that I think that this is where we, I was, we call them, we, uh, it's really, we use the word sacrosanct, right? We do our sacrosanct value. There are things in the license agreement I'll absolutely not move on. Um, and I, you know, I'd rather walk away from a deal before someone asks me to commit my scientist, for example, to do something they don't want to do. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's more important for me to protect the freedom versus to, uh, you know, to make a little bit of money. Let's talk about that academic freedom piece. You mentioned that a deal between a startup and a university has to have academic freedom baked into it. Um, we talked about this a little bit on our intro call, and it was something that was, you know, a thought that I hadn't had before. So maybe you could walk people on the call through what that really means. Yeah. So I think it comes up in several contexts, right? I think importantly, um, when there's a saying, you startup, you know, imagine my, you know, one of my sons is happening right now, right? Has a many context of a great new idea for a drug, perhaps a drug platform, right? It's something that is really working in this first application. Um, but what if the scientist wants to explore a little different, right? What if the scientist a year, two years from now makes an improvement on this, right? The startup is a little nervous, right? Because they're about to start a new launching and launch a new campaign, right? They're about to engage um, a lot of money into this. Uh, and there's this bit of a wild card, right? The scientist that maybe, you know, who knows, maybe in three years we'll discover something that's way better uh, well, and this is something that um, it, it will be, I think, a risk, something that a startup needs to, or, or a company working with scientists, university have to kind of accept. But I think what really needs to be remembered, this is all very relationship driven, right? If a startup has a relationship with the founder, with the scientific founder, with the university, if, if they sit on the board, if they, if they have, if, and if the startup maybe sponsors a little bit of research in the lab, right? Then the startup will have indeed the right to look at this, right? The, the right to maybe even license this, this, this improvement that we talked about, but it doesn't come automatically, right? What sometimes people think like, oh, I license technology X, I get automatic, automatic rights to the improvement. To me, it's a little bit like, well, you're licensing, you know, you're buying an economy class seat. If you want to pay for business, you got to pay for it separately. So, you know, you don't get any automatic rights to the improvement. It's a different product, if you will. And that's how mm -hmm. we see it. Um, you know, so we, we can keep you informed. Sometimes we agree to that. Um, but in the end, um, you know, these are discrete units of IP. The way to get there, like I said, just sponsor some research. And that, you know, if you can afford it, and I think that's a good way to build goodwill with the founder, with the scientific founder, uh, and to, you know, with the university, because then we're always on the lookout for that research money. So yeah. um, something to keep in mind. Would you say that a partnership like that with a researcher that you know is going to want to push the envelope and do that additional research. Is that a way for a startup to kind of, I mean, just to use a jargon to a jargony term to future proof themselves to say, Hey, we got yeah. someone on our, on our team who is thinking about, you know, 20 years down the road. Definitely. And I think, you know, what um, it keeps you um, appraisal of the development. Um, it doesn't replace the company's R and D, right. Which is more, development rather than research, but you can almost initially, at least, and that's what a lot of people do, you know, outsource our research part a little bit, right? And I think, and at least in a particular aspect, whether you maybe you want to find out more about, you know, will this treatment work in a different disease model, right? Or maybe, um, you know, you want to, um, things get a little trickier with clinical research. I just want to clarify that. I think so that, that the conflict of interest stuff can be something we have to manage. But, you know, sometimes you want to try it out in different contexts, at least in the preclinical way, uh, it's very doable. With clinical, we can discuss that. It's definitely doable, but you may want another PI. I mean, there's a ways around it. But uh, basically, what you all want to do is to set up an incentive for a 
a researcher, right? To yeah. um, because then your clinical study will not be as valid if someone has you know a very natural incentive, right? To yeah. for a certain result. But um, totally agree. The future proofing is a good way to think about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to get into more of what makes a great partnership. But before that, uh, let's get to two questions in the chat that have come through. Sure. Uh, first, let's go to Chantal uh, Kersens from uh, Care Coach. Chantal, if you want to come off mute. Thanks. Yeah, so my question is around um, the indirect cost rate. So this, this gets a little bit into the weeds, but in my experience, I've been on the academic side and on the startup side. And when we as a startup try to work with researchers, and, you know, I totally buy into all the good things uh, that you're saying and the win-win that's there, However, regularly, the indirect cost rate that a university charges can be cost prohibitive or a barrier for a startup uh, to continue and to even um, uh, consider partnering with a university. Is there, so my question is, how should we approach that conversation? And is there a way to get a better deal? Chantal, before he answers, can you just give us 20 seconds of what Care Coach is, just so for sure. context? Sure. So, Care.Coach is a 24-7 uh, humanly staffed avatar, and we work with medically complex and socially complex individuals in uh, a community and, and medical centers. Perfect. Thank you. And that's a great question, and I really you know appreciate just second head on, because it's going to come up. Um, Universities, how to say it is the best way. Um, it's There's few ways around it, right? I, I can't really give you a very good, so maybe one thing I, that I will start with is that often the kind of things you may be interested in, so clinical research actually does carry a significantly lower indirect cost rate because it tends to be, um, you know, not as used labs and facilities as much. So I would make sure, first of all, that, you know, all your, that it's classified correctly. If you're doing a clinical trial or clinical proof of concept, that will typically carry around, you know, in the 20 or 30%, something like that, versus 50 or 60%, which is your typical indirect cost rate. But a little think about it. I mean, um, university PhD students earn $40,000 a year, $50,000. When else are you going to get a professional, um, you know, for that amount of money in a large city, um, without other costs. So this, uh, I actually think the university, it's very cheap labor cost. It's really what then is offset by the indirect cost because they get all the support. And the same with postdoc. I was a postdoc at Stanford. It was hard. It was very hard living there. My fellow PhD, you know, working at company, they were making, you know, more than indirect cost rate. So I, I actually think if you really look at that, we provide pretty good value bringing in the, you know, we're, we're not CROs in that way, right? We, um, we, we do have another MO, um, but we tend to cost less than CROs, I think. Um, depends what you, who you go to and how. So I actually think, you know, you get good value for what you pay for. Um, and that's the indirect cost. I, I actually, you know, this is my personal opinion. I see it, they're tied to the lower labor costs. Um, I actually do think that if you were to employ the same, you know, individual in a different context, you would have to pay more. Um, so rather than seeing it as some sort of we, we charge, um, you know, some sort of greed 
I, I, if you can I ask in the kind of your heart, you know, it is the cost of doing business for us. It pays like for my time, et cetera. It really the levels up, levels us up a bit. You, and you, occasionally you can negotiate university on direct costs. Um, I would ask them. Uh, sometimes it makes sense, for example, if the way you, uh, you're not really using the labs in the same way, or, you know, you, again, the, the clinical study is a good example. You know, sometimes there are ways to do that, but uh, it's usually very selected um, time. So don't be, and, and, you know, people like me, for example, don't have a lot of authority over that, right? Um, because we're literally mm -hmm. undercutting the branch we're sitting on uh, if we do that. Um, so that's how I see it. Um, I hope that helps. Uh, but I'm with you, you know, and, and uh, if that's really the sticking point, we can always have a conversation, but I just wouldn't always expect much movement on that. Any follow-up, Chantel, to answer your question? Um, yeah, I guess a follow-up would be, who do we engage? Is it on that rate? Do we actually go to um, tech transfer or who, who, because if I talk to an individual investigator, um, or even the Office of Sponsored Programs, they may not, they may say the same thing, like, oh, I'm just, you know, here's the right. So, so sponsored programs grants, they usually, there usually is a waiver mechanism that goes, but they're usually assigned by the, the head person, so whether it's uh, some sort of a, a dean of the, or the head of the program or the division or the, the fact, you know, the fact. So it, it has to go pretty high up. So that's why I'm saying, you know, the sponsor program would have a note typically, but it's always like an exception of policy. And um, for example, if someone doesn't want to pay the indirect cost rate for me, um, then I'm not very willing to give them, for example, the right to the first right to negotiate a license, right? Because I do think you know, then you really are giving a gift to university. Right? That's how I see it. Gifts carry no strings. If you want strings, that's where it comes. Because, you know, we, we get those as well, right? And they come with a very little indirect cost, but also come with no strings. So it's really the kind of the, the value that you get in addition to just pushing, you know, to give a gift to the university, you kind of, what you're paying for really is sort of, you know, you want the, the human inquiry to go in a certain direction, right? You're, you're kind of, because you know, this will be published, you know, you're not buying something from a CRO. You really just kind of, okay, I want, you know, the world to discover more of something about this. That's what sponsored research is. And indirect costs, kind of, if you think about it the way I think about it, it's kind of pay for that, your, your rights to whatever might come out of that. Um, you may want to, you, you may end up forfeiting those rights if you, if you go um, with no indirect costs. Uh, great question. Appreciate that. And it speaks to a, a bigger question that we can get into in a minute. And actually, a question the chat speaks to, which is just how to communicate with a university. You talk, Chantal, you talked about uh, knowing who to call uh, when, when you're dealing with a large institution, um, knowing where you should get your foot in the door. So actually, Yair, why don't you um, come off mute and ask your question, explain real quickly what, you've, what you're doing, and um, go ahead. Hey there, uh, Yair Saperstein. I'm the co-founder and CEO of AvoMD. AvoMD makes guidelines actionable by changing it into clinical decision support that can be customized for individual institutions. And then we allow those individual institution created or modified CDS to be sold to other systems. And so we have a, a distinct interest in partnering with uh, different academic institutions 
to be able to work with their tech transfer office, but also with individual clinicians and with departments. And we've been having a little bit of trouble navigating the systems at each different place. And I was just wondering, specific to us, but really more generally, do you have a playbook as far as how to get to the right people within the institution as we're trying and as these other companies uh, that are on the line and that this might be relevant to are trying to partner with the institutions? Thank you. No, that is that is a really good question. Um, and I think I totally, you know, I, I'm like, you know, I'm nodding because I, I, I would have to think a little bit about that one. Because I think, you know, what we, the way this has been set up typically at universities, right, is that sort of, uh, uh, there are different people who are responsible for, you know, incoming and outgoing things, really. That's kind of how if you really think about it. So you'll be right to talk to me about, you know, the outgoing piece. So what a university can license to you. Uh, however, if you start talking about, you know, oh, you want to partner with a specific individual and get their expertise. So, you know, then things become a little tricky because are you looking to, to have them as consultants are you looking to, you know, use our institutional data? To, so I think what I would really recommend is try to, you know, uh, find a way to really express it in some sort of way that expresses this transaction piece. So, you know, you get A, you want A, and you get B. And I think it sounds like there'd be flow going both ways. It sounds for me like in general, a well-resourced tech transfer office could handle that uh, with some assistance from data, folks, um, but it will probably be different in any, every university. And that's something I want to kind of maybe segue into is that because this is still a relatively new thing, if you think about how universities move in terms of the, you know, tech transfer being, you know, opening doors maybe 30 years ago um, after the Baydell Act, uh, well, I guess this point more, almost 40 years ago. Um, and then for a while, we were really just repositories of patents, right? And I think this whole idea that data is valuable, that these kind of both-way relationships are getting more and more valuable, that sort of proliferated roles on different universities. Um, so I would look at the specific school um, and think, okay, well, is their office large or small? Do they have someone like an industry liaison person? Right? So quite a few of these offices will have someone who is will sound like have a general title, maybe they're responsible for industry relations or alliance management or something like that, right? And I think that person could be your way to queue up the specific people within the university. Like it shouldn't be on you. You shouldn't be the person that really has to understand all the relationship with them. You know, in our office, which is still relatively small at Walt Cornell, it will be a licensing officer, probably, that takes that role to get out of our biopharma alliance office. Um, but I think, you know, I would... Typically, there is someone in um, in the tech transfer office, or in a, you know something called an innovation office. Uh, the, you know, Columbia has Columbia Technology Ventures, right? Johns Hopkins has another huge office. So that, I think there's a lot of schools that have some dedicated individuals. These may be those that are a little easier to work with for you at first. Uh, if you and they, so that's something to really uh, consider. Um, can, I jump but, in? Uh, yep. can I jump in here? I just want to keep this sure. as practical as possible. Yair, uh, how does this resonate with you in your experience? I mean, have you gone after institutions that had uh, dedicated teams like uh, Lukash is describing? Yeah, it's, it's helpful. I think the part that you're saying about finding somebody that's a champion within the institution to kind of rephrase it a different way 
um, who can help connect you to others. And hopefully that champion is within the tech uh, transfer office and that way everything can be streamlined has definitely helped. I think sometimes the issue that we run into is different points that stagnate because there is no formal system set up for this in many of the other institutions. And so while it's worked in one or two or three, then we hit the fourth and it's, well, we don't have a system set up for this, so let's try to work on it together. And it drags on for half a year, eight months, um, as we try to figure out a system for the university to kind of work with us in this way. Um, so I, I think the part that I think the parts that resonate most are find somebody within the institution and especially tech transfer office that can help um, as the point person, um, and then try to coordinate the rest around it. Yeah. And how about this sort of expressing the value proposition, maybe? Because I think that, for example, wasn't super clear. That I or like kind of parsing it into transaction pieces that make sense. Or university, right? I mean, I think that maybe because you don't know what makes sense for you, like you know, like I said, think about licensing, flow of data, flow of material, flow of money, um, and if you can kind of show it, kind of what's in it for it, I think maybe that that makes things easier too. Um, I don't know whether that that's been helpful. Um, awesome, hey, appreciate the question, Yair. Um, let's go to another question. Uh, this one's from Brad from Mind Trace. Brad, you can come off mute and go ahead and ask it. Great, thanks. Yeah, so you know the. The broad question is, as I wrote in the chat, is essentially about how to approach negotiations with medical centers about accessing patient data. Um, and I guess I, I have some follow-ups to that, but I guess maybe the perspective, if I could frame the question, would be if you could maybe talk about what kinds of things incentivize a university or incentivize a medical center when they come to these negotiations with, for instance, startup companies that may... Um, be very interested in accessing some of their patient data. What's a, what's interesting to the university in those negotiations? Brad, in two sentences, remind us what MindTrace is working on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, MindTrace is a uh, is a startup that is um, designing software tools that help cl clinical teams predict uh, neurosurgery patient outcome before their surgery. Awesome, Lukash. Thank you. Um, I think so. Can I just ask? Are you looking to retroactively kind of access patient data that's already there, or are you looking to kind of design a study that will consent patients for this particular study, you know, and then access that? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, we, we are interested in retrospective information, but fundamentally we are interested in prospective data collection under an IRB. And that is the sort of part B of this question is essentially IRB versus a business associate agreement and well, that's from the startup side, and I'm curious from the institution perspective. So, as you can, so, so I have that question because that, that is a for us. I think that's a that's a really big difference, right? Did our patient consent to something like this, right? And and I think, and when is it possible to sort of, you know, how how derived does it have to be um, for us to not worry about it anymore? So. I can give you an example. Um, you know, typically the researchers at the school, right? They have some freedom to work with data. Um, so if you were to interest, if you were to ask a very specific scientific question, or maybe not necessarily scientific, but a question, and you could sponsor a study at the school, right? In which way your company doesn't really get access to the data, right? But you get answer to your question. Then that's something that's very helpful to us, right? So for example, in your case, maybe it could be 
you know, there's someone you work with. And I can tell you, we have neurosurgeons that are really interested in, you know, predicting and setting things up. Of course, they want to be good neurosurgeons. So I could find you a scientist, maybe, or a clinician, really, that, uh, or both, that could help you design a study, even looking at retrospectively, right? But they would be the PI on that study, and they would be the one looking at the data, and you just kind of get an outcome of it in a way. And that makes us very comfortable because sort of you're convenient. We're not then selling your data. We just have you sponsor a study, right? So that's something we really, we really are sort of afraid of because um, our reputation is at stake here, right? Is that we would somehow be seen as sort of selling our patients out, um, right? They're trusting us with their health, with their data. Uh, and somehow we, of course, we understand that this isn't bit, that we're really advancing innovation here, right? This is not about somehow us making a huge pile of money uh, out of that. But, but I think, you know, it has been represented like that on front pages of many journals. And the last thing we want to end up with on the front page of New York Times for that reason, right? So this is going to be always in the back of our head when talking about patient data. Um, so if you can design some sort of a firewall, and if you really come to us with an idea that, you know, whether it's, and this isn't just the anonymous, you know, anonymous data, well, that's fine. Sometimes you can really dig through things and find, so it really needs to be a little bit more and more thought out. I think if you, if you show me that you have thought about that risk, um, you know, you design your study in a way that takes this into account and you, it, you know, that already, I'm already seeing, and, and you kind of show it down the line for us, right? Whether it's a license to something, right? Whether what this can really lead to uh, versus us just, you know, um, um, sort of giving, because then it's kind of like the next step, right? Because and, and then what? Whether it's it's a license to the data, uh, whether, like you said, it's a prospective study you're sponsoring with us. I think kind of having the next follow-up steps that are clear really also helps me. But to me, like I said, the key part here will be for, to see that the companies understood the risk and is willing to work with us on them. And I think that that's something that's important. Um, and as far as the IRB goes, um, that's typically separate, unfortunately. And then the IRBs, um, you know, ours is backed up. I know that, right? And I think that's an issue. I mean, sometimes certain universities, I don't know how it works, that can work with external IRBs. If you hire them, like there's ways you can sometimes find ways around it. But I do see it as a, you know, they're usually very separate things, approving studies, et cetera. And I understand that can be a bottleneck. So, you know, I, I think other than being maybe flexible and seeing whether an external IRB would work and being flexible and understanding IRB with timing, I think that can be, yeah, that could definitely be a challenge. Um, so I appreciate it because it also slows down our own researchers. Um, Thanks for the question, Brad. Appreciate that. Let's go to a question in the chat from Salman Khan from Biotics AI. Go ahead, Salman. Make sure you explain what you're building and in a couple sentences before you yeah, get started. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is Saman Khan. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Biotics AI. We're building machine learning algorithms that can detect abnormalities in fetus, also leveraging AI to help the doctor workload when it comes to reporting and whatnot. Uh, thanks again for taking time to speak with us. So guys, this is, uh, you know, this is very important and we truly appreciate your time. Uh, my question is following up on Yair's questions. Uh, I wanted to uh, get into the nitty gritty with Cornell since you work there. How, how does Cornell go about implementing new technologies? Uh, I mean, what does a typical sales cycle look like? How long does it take? Uh, can you walk us through the process and, you know, who are the key decision, um, you know, makers, who are the stakeholders, where do we start? You know, what does that process look like? What, what does that pilot look like? How do you guys test the technology? And then who signs off and how do you guys, I know this is a loaded question. Just a nine part question. No, no, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I, th and I think that that's, that's a key part, really. I think just to make sure I understand. Um, see, I'm not the buyer of technology, but I am the seller. If you have a new technology for a university to take on, 
I am the last person you want to talk to. I, I, you know, I can sort of, because I am not, I mean, I can suggest to people, but I think in that case, what you really want to do is to fire the, find a clinician, right? And the people that really use it. Uh, and then to try to, to sort of sell. And then, you know, so that, that's, and then I think, you know, they get to their own channels and then, you know, the, the, the different, um, um, people would sign off on it, whether the department head, but it, that's a kind of an administrative process. And as you know, gosh, you know, it took forever for a health record to become computerized, right? We can finally say that now most of us work in Epic uh, or in related systems, but it took long enough, right? So, so I, I do think you have to contend with uh, definitely at least a lot of late adopters. Those there might be some early ones. So I think here, I mean, I, I think what you want to do is to find and again, this is more like me giving advice of just being generally someone works at a university. You know, fire those, find those early adopters, incentivize, you know, find maybe people who also uh, innovate in this space and work with them. One way I could see, for example, this being adopted a little easier, right? If this has a little bit of something that we created as well, right? And it doesn't have to be anything big, but I think that way you also can get people buy-in. But this is, I have to say, unfortunately, I get a lot of those emails from people who are like, oh, I have this new great technology that you know, universities should work with. I'm like, I can't, I'm, I'm really a seller in that case, you know, we are very, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I can put you in that of a purchasing office, but that's probably not who you would want to be talking to. But yeah. my advice here would be to find a, an adopter, a champion, um, you know, pretty, preferably someone who, who is well positioned and then, you know, their community. Um, and I think there is a lot, I mean, again, example I can give you, Olivier Elemento, uh, he's not a clinician, but he's someone who heads an institute for computational medicine, I think it's called, or something similar um, he, uh, at, at, at Cornell. And he's someone who, for example, has IP on uh, abnormalities um, on um, in vitro, so not fetal development, but pre-fetal pre stuff, right? So I think maybe there could be a cool collaboration there, and maybe that's where you could find a, a, your first adopter, right? So that's how think about it sometimes to get find a champion find that hook but um yeah the, fortunately i can't really help with with buying um no, but I, we can you know if we can connect and i can put in that with oliver and see what you know if, if, if there's some there's a desert yeah what right. was his name again sorry sorry olivier, olivier elemento and we'll he make does sure a lot. You, we'll make sure you connect it off the call someone do, do right, not worry so maybe a good way to um talk about that cycle, Lukash, is to talk about a, a case study, a, a startup that you've worked with. I think you maybe even have worked with one from Startup Health before, but just kind of what a successful partnership looks like, uh, has looked like in the past. Sure. Um, so I think there's a number of ways, right? Often we, we found companies, right? So that's something we always need. So if you, so first of all, don't hesitate to approach us, even if you're just an entrepreneur with a vague idea of what you want to do. But I know that's not where you are, but maybe think about your next opportunity. I have, you know, probably four technologies right now that are looking for a CEO, right? Or, or more, probably more than that. Right? So that's something we, we usually have ideas in science, uh, but we're, we're sort of short of uh, entrepreneurs and skills, right? Particularly, um, um, you know, I, I think maybe someone like Boston and San Francisco are, are quite blessed to have a lot of bio people, but I think a lot of other ecosystems still need them, right? So, so that's one way when we kind of approach, um, we get up so to really think about it like that. You know, another way, um, like I said, is where you want to build your pipeline a little bit more, 
like when you maybe have a, your first product, um, but you want to then augment it and, um, you know, say, find something a little bit, uh, whether it's a new addition to your app or, you know, maybe you want like, like a lot of you are looking for data to train your algorithm, right? And I think, um, so, so just back to your question, to be very specific, I'm looking like a specific partnership. Um, um, you know, quite often, um, uh, we also find we find the funding as well, right? So a good partnership is where I come, where someone comes to me quite prepared with an understanding of a market. And I have to really compliment, uh, you know, Gail and Yield Analytics for coming to me uh, with a really thought out idea of what their product is. You know, they really understood the market. Um, they really sort of know where they're going. And then that kind of becomes a clear path to me. And I feel very comfortable giving someone technology like that. So for me, one of the key part really is to show that you understood the market uh, and that you have a business plan in place, right? So we don't never sell a license where there is no business plan or whether it's just, and maybe this is where I can share like a failure story. You know, sometimes we work with uh, entrepreneurs that maybe have no business in being entrepreneurs, but they are someone that the scientists trust. Right. I'm like, oh, I have a guy, right? Or I have a gal. And um, and that's not, so, 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 so that's something that, you know, we are really, we, we like to see expertise and if not expertise and then at least some eagerness to understand the market. Because we also open to first time founders as well. Yeah. Um, but I think that's something we're really looking for. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get into the whole cycle yet. I'm just starting to. Yeah, I know. I know. There's, a, there's a lot there to unpack. You mentioned briefly there working with Gail Port at uh, eHealth Analytics, who I believe uh, is on the call. I see you, Gail. Um, could you, and, and you said you were um, uh, impressed by the pitch that, you know, they understood the, the market, where they were going. Any more specifics you can give us about that case study as to why that worked? Uh, in your mind, why those pieces came together? Well, it, so uh, just to be clear, it hasn't yet worked. We just had a couple of initial meetings, but I do think it's looking, it's looking well. I mean, it, it, the way it, I think I understand it, it unfolded, right, that we had a physician at Wild Cornell who had an idea, and he talked to people in our office a few years ago, and I, I wasn't there yet, but my colleague, I think he told them, well, this sounds really good. But, um, and maybe, you know, Gail, you can introduce your, your excellent idea in a second. I, I don't know if everyone knows, but it's senior care advisor, right? It's something that definitely needed. Um, and, you know, we tell them to find entrepreneurs and someone that can take his vision to reality. And I think that's exactly what happened. Uh, um, you know, he found um, the team at eHealth Analytics and they seem to have worked together to really develop the prototype. So when I, in other words, why I think it really worked is that because I see someone really, again, understood the opportunity has a well-put-together pitch deck, has a clear value proposition, not just to the investor. And the university in some sense is also an investor. We're giving you our IP, uh, whether it's code, whether, you know, data, right, in that way. And we're hoping, we're banking on you doing well so that you can pay us back sometime in the future. Right? You sure, think sure. about it. We, we rarely command for startups and someone asks you for an upfront fee that's too large. Right? We, always, we usually ask for a little bit of equity. You know, we ask for things down the line. So we're kind of investor. So sure, if we sure. see, if you do that as an investor, right? So we see the pitch, but not just something that appeals to the investors, but also appeals to the customers, whether it's, um, you know, their doctors, their payers, whoever they may be, then I think, you know, we're, in, we're, we're already in a good, and, and it, there's a team like in Kelsey, we held analytics. I mean, they've done it many times. So I feel very um, sort of secure and then placing university IP with a team like that. 
Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's go to a couple more questions in the chat. Uh, Peter Aryan from Juna. Um, why don't you go ahead and explain what you do and ask your question. How's it going? Uh, I'm Peter from Juna. I got to say, beautiful background. Uh, I had to throw that in there, color on point. Um, but we provide uh, direct-to-consumer at-home SDI testing for uh, Gen Zers. So college students, obviously, uh, being sexually active is a huge market for us. Um, our approach has been very B2C to B focused. So we have student ambassadors that represent Juna and have actually like pushed our brand um, onto the campuses themselves. Um, I was wondering what is the best recommended strategy you think with, with how we've approached this? And if you think universities and student needs are enough for these kinds of partnerships to come into place. Can you, uh, sorry, was the last part of your question? I, I misheard though. If you think the student needs are enough uh, for these kinds of partnerships, it's a big question because a lot of universities already have in-house clinics and diagnostics. So um, we're kind of seeing whether we should just keep focusing on our B2B, B2C approach uh, or have someone that specializes in university partnerships as oh, an account point, executive. Yeah. Yes, uh, I think it's a little different when it comes to undergrads, right? I, I think I think so. If you think about it, there's been a bit of a shift, and that's interesting. And again, I'm not really speaking from my role as a university tech transfer person, but just more like as someone who works at the university here, right? But there's been of a shift. You know, undergrads are a little bit more like consumers at the university at this point, right? And I think that if you have our loved one or been at university recently, I mean, I think things have um, sort of evolved to that. So I think. If there's something that the university students really want, uh, it will probably be provided. So I think you're right to focus on them. But I think overall, universities are concerned about in terms of grad students and undergrad, but under um, about the well-being of students. And I think um, you know whether it's sexual health, mental health. I think all of that is really important. Um, you know, other kinds of of well-being. And I think you're it probably makes sense for you to find someone at a university, you know, whether, but it's usually someone who'll be working in the dean's office or well-being, you know, there'll be people like that. And I think if you can convince them to make that part of their offering, um, you know, and if you, again, maybe show them a value that they provide the university, could be partnered with this, their clinic, clinic, I don't, you know, not as in competition to services they offer, but rather to complement their services, you know, showcase the, uh, the groups that they're not focusing on, uh, maybe people, I don't know, maybe men having sex with men who are not comfortable going into the office, right? But they need to be tested or something like that, right? I mean, I think there's a huge number of population you can discuss. And I think you would need to find, um, um, I, I think it would help you to find the right, but again, it probably wouldn't be me, right? It'd probably be somebody who works with students, someone who works response, but I, I do think it makes sense to consider university an ally in this case. Thank you. I don't know about help. Appreciate the yeah, question, yeah, Peter. Thank Appreciate you. that. Um, as we get towards the top of the hour, Lukash, I want to just give you a couple of sort of big picture questions to, to close us out. You know, given your vantage point, both from the scientific side and working with startups, where do you see the greatest opportunities in health innovation today? Um, I, I So I'm obviously a little bit biased because I am, a, you know, myself a neuroscientist and I, um, by training, but I just want to something put your attention is that the you know the cost of dementia currently uh, of untreated dementia the cost is more than the cost of all the cancers combined. Right, so I, I think for me, 
uh, this is more like a five to 10 year horizon, but I do say you think neuroscience, um, you know, whether it's again, dementia, whether it's cardiovascular, Alzheimer's disease. And as you know, we're sort of getting into the, the point where maybe we'll get some drugs for that. Um, but also there's plenty of ways to support these patients with dementia, right? I mean, right now I'm, you know, I'm trying to find a smart pill dispenser for my dad and you know, it wasn't that easy. Like, you know, I, I just think there's a lot of ways in which you can really help those people out. And I think this is, again, population will be growing. Um, so again, I think neuroscience, you know, Tanya and that, that psychiatry is becoming quite an interesting field. I mean, we had approvals for postpartum depression recently, right? Um, psychedelics come into play. Pain, again, as you know, is still very big. And, and sometimes pain doesn't mean, again, that means to be chemical therapeutic. Right? We know that mindful meditation works very well, people for with pain. Right? There's ways, you know, fibromyalgia. So I want to say this is one thing. But another thing I want to just do what you, I think a lot of you are doing, is, is exactly unlocking this treasure trove of data that we have as universities. And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, detecting depression uh, from voice cues by, you know, by, by voice assistants, um, whether, and whether it's, uh, you know, what many are using, of you are using, you know, training AI um, and other algorithm on the, on the current set to see and prevent disease, right? And I think that's, like, I find that perhaps to be the most reassuring thing. The thing, early detection is still the best weapon we have against a lot of diseases, whether it's cognitive impairment, whether it's cancer, um, right, if you know early, you can act early. And I think that's something that I sort of wanna, I think luckily you are doing that. So I would, um, I would really uh, keep on encourage you to do that. Um, yeah, yeah, I might not be, maybe not a sort of, uh, you know, I'm discovering completely new content in here when I say that, but um, no. yeah, safe hook. And again, um, you know, see what the markets are. I think, uh, you know, medicine is still your best friend, right? I think medicine, talk to your doctors, you know, talk to them, see what un unmet needs are. I mean, you know, see what patients come back uh, with continue. Like, well, maybe you have a good solution medically, but there's no adherence solution, right? I mean, we know um, apps and digital therapeutics, right? They're, they're becoming more and more common. And I think having a more coherent approach to that will be great. Like who will become the Apple store yeah. uh, for for apps, uh, for Medicaid, you know, that, that's all these questions that we're, we're wondering about. And, and I, I just say, I'm your ally, right? Just to say, I'm an ally of innovation ecosystem when it comes to unlocking this treasure trove of data. So I'm very happy to work with you on your ideas and propositions. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid to come and say hi. Well, we'll make sure to get your contact information shared with everybody. Uh, just to close it out, you know, sometimes the innovation is, you know, an actual therapeutic, a drug, a, an invention, and sometimes it's an innovative uh, business model, an innovative way of coming to market. And I wonder uh, where you see those opportunities right now. Yeah, I think that's a very good, excellent question. And I think that's something that we often would rely for people like you um, to provide, right? There's a dire need for new business models, I think, for in a lot of areas, I mean, um, including uh, infectious diseases, right? So what do you do if you get a new antibiotic, right? You put it on the shelf, right? You, you, you wanna use a last resort. So, you know, currently, I mean, uh, was it a Kaogen, right? They got an approval for an antibiotic. I mean, normally an FDA approval for any drug would send the company shares flying. Well, the company folded because it was one approval, not two, and it wasn't enough to sustain it. Uh, because everyone, you know, the, the demand, everyone was afraid that demand wouldn't be enough. What if we had an innovative business model for antibiotic pricing, once a subscription model, um, you know, something where you, um, something like that, you know, if you can get people on board, 
uh, with new business models to fund, whether it's innovation um, in areas like, you know, the antibiotic, antibiotic cliff is going to happen, right? 2030 is something we all have to work hard to prevent. And again, I'd be very happy to partner with a company that has an idea of how to conquer that. Um, but again, I mean, it could mean anything. It could be direct-to-consumer models. Um, you know, we launched a company out of UCLA that partners uh, with, uh, pre with perimenopausal women and the practitioners to help them with cognitive um, brain fog that happens because of cognitive impairment that some women would have in menopause. It's an up treatment that um, that's a hormone treatment, it's a weak treatment approved in Europe, but not in the U.S. But it can be prescribed. Um, by a compounding pharmacy. So there is a telehealth company that worked with us and we licensed the technology to them. So the treatment could go direct in the hands of the patient, right? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, and we are very happy. We, that was a technology we were trying to launch forever. So we yeah. really, uh, you know, there is definitely a big model. Um, and, and finally, even cost of making drugs, you think about it, just how much it costs, you know, things like using AI, et cetera, to de-risk and help um, with clinical trials with preclinical research i think there's a really a huge need to just lower the cost of drug development yeah as well well lukash that brings us to the top of the hour and uh i would be mindful of everyone's time thank you so much for for spending this time with us uh giving us your broad overview of the industry but also really going under the hood and how startups can partner with universities it's been uh, really informative Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I hope, you know, please uh, reach out. I, I feel like we really just scratched the surface. So, uh, you know, maybe we can, uh, I know. I can come back I, in, two, in two months. <laughs> I, I, had about, I had about 25 questions I didn't get to ask. Luckily, we got to some good questions in the chat. Speaking of which, your contact information is in the chat. So everyone who's on the call, make sure you grab that. Uh, we can also share it in the uh, Startup Health Slack channel later if necessary. And we'll be back next Tuesday to be talking to a live core. So make sure you, you put that on your calendar and uh, hope to see you then. Lukash, once again, thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Be safe. Be well. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 380 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund in collaboration with AngelList, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.